Did she really do that? You betcha she did. Another episode of You Betcha Sheeted, the podcast where women leaders, changemakers, and entrepreneurs share their wit and wisdom. I'm your host, Raina Rakiki. Today, I have a fantastic guest in the studio. I have Dr. Jill Stoddard, and she has a lot to share in terms of coming into your own and avoiding imposter syndrome, which I think even the most confident of us have come across imposter syndrome at one point or other in our lives. So Jill is passionate about sharing science-backed ideas from psychology to help people thrive. She is a psychologist, a TEDx speaker, award-winning teacher, and co-host of the popular podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. Um, Dr. Stoddard is also the author of several books, including her latest book, Imposter No More, Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. She also has authored a book called Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. And I don't know about you, but I feel like everybody today has some form of anxiety. You know, I don't know where exactly it comes from, but everyone I talk to has that going on in their lives. So it'd be great to hear some tips. So Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Raina. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to pick your brain. So let's let's dive in and start talking about um, imposter syndrome. Like, what does it mean to have that? Where do you think it comes from, and how can we overcome it? Yeah. So imposter syndrome, and, and let's talk about this word syndrome too. Um, you know, this is the popular term. Oops, the popular term imposter syndrome. And it's this experience of intellectual phoniness or inadequacy that exists and persists even when there's objective evidence um, to the contrary, right? So you can have lots of achievements, accomplishments, and feel like maybe you just got lucky or it was a result of someone just being nice or because you're a legacy at a university or something like that. And you're afraid that you're not as competent as maybe other people think you are. And at any minute, everyone's going to figure it out. Yeah, they're going to see through you. <laughs> exactly. We'll see right through you and see what a fraud you actually are. And it affects up to 70% of us. So when you were saying in the introduction, like most of us will have this experience at some time, that's exactly right. And so, of course, something that affects 70% of the population cannot possibly be a syndrome, right? A syndrome means pathology, disease, disorder, when really 70% means this is just a normal part of being human, right? And, and it may be the case. There's not a lot of good research despite, you know, you can do a Google search and find tens of million or maybe even hundreds of millions of hits. It's an outrageous number on imposter syndrome. But if you look at scientific databases, there's a real lack of solid scientific research on this. But, but there are hypotheses out there that I think make a lot of sense that this may be more common among people who have had an experience of marginalization, right? So if you're a woman who's been told you don't belong at the male tables and you venture into more traditionally male areas, right? Or maybe you're in the C-suite or maybe you're in law enforcement or whatever it may be, um, you know, it stands to reason that you might question your belongingness because we've all been getting those overt and covert messages our whole lives about where we do and don't belong, right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, 
I didn't, 70%. Wow. That's a really big, that's a huge part of the population. And I, I liked what you were saying about how it, when you hear that number, it's really just a normal part of being human, not something to necessarily fret about, but it is something to, to think about, right? So what are some ways that people can overcome this, you know, to believe in themselves? Well, the bad news is they can't really. Okay. <laughs> Start there. <laughs> right. Because it's a normal part of being human. And, you know, most of the books and blogs and, you know, whatever out there that, to, that most of the suggestions around imposter syndrome are how to build confidence and believe in yourself. And if you're able to do that, fantastic. But that often backfires for many of us, right? So like if you if you were to share something with me, and we can do a specific example if you want, but if you were to share something with me that you feel particularly um, maybe insecure or self-conscious about, and I knew you well enough to list off all of the evidence that that insecurity isn't accurate. So I'll, I'll share my own. So a lot of my kind of inner critic thoughts tend to be in this realm of like, I'm mediocre, I'm average, I'm not special. You know, that social comparison where everybody else is better and doing more. And if you took my resume, you could list off all the evidence that's that that's not true, right? The number of books I've written or the TED Talk I've done or the business I've started. And what will happen is my brain will go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and very easily give you the evidence that, no, really, I'm not special. I'm mediocre. And, you know, our brains have this negativity bias. We overestimate the likelihood bad things will happen. We underestimate our ability to cope. And you asked me in the beginning, like, where does this come from, this imposter syndrome come from? And I think that there are evolutionary roots to both this and the anxiety that you brought up earlier, too, that early humans who worried about what was up around the corner, you know, who avoided uncertainty and who hunted and traveled and gathered together had a survival advantage, right? So like we needed to worry about our standing in the group. Am I providing value? Am I adequate? Am I measuring up? Because if I'm not, I might get booted and that's a literal life and death situation, right? When we're talking 200,000 years ago. Now, fast forward, we're not worried about, you know, saber-toothed tigers, but we now know research has found time and time again that one of the, if not the, strongest predictors of overall physical and mental health and well-being is the presence of quality relationships, right? Like humans don't have claws and fangs and run at, have, at fast speeds. We have each other. And so it makes sense that we would do the social comparison thing, that we would worry are we measuring up? Are we bringing enough to the table? And we would fear being found out because this means we'll get left behind. And in much the same way, we're not going to like get rid of a skunk's smell, right? Because they need that to protect themselves and they would die if they didn't have that anymore. We're not going to get rid of people's imposter syndrome and, and social comparison. But what we can do is change our relationship to it so that it doesn't hold us back, so that it's not like we don't let those thoughts and feelings drive our behavior. And instead, we really think about like, what kind of life do we want? What kind of person do we want to be? And can we move our hands and our feet and our mouths, which like truly is the only thing we get to control in those directions, even in the presence of those thoughts and feelings? Like we don't have to sit around and wait until we feel confident to, to do things. We can do them. 
So would you say it's best to, I, this is a personal philosophy of mine, to do it scared? You know, it's like you'll never feel 100% confident, right? So like, just do it, do it scared. See what happens. 100%. 100%. And here's the thing. If it's something you care about, you're going to be scared, right? Like I, I tell this story I, I once, you know, they say, um, it's just like riding a bike. I mean, if you haven't done something in a long time and then you do it, you, you know. so I got on a bike after not riding a bike for 10 years. So this was literally me getting back on a bike. And within 30 seconds, I fell. Oh. So <laughs> riding a bike was not just like riding a bike for me. And I, I spent zero seconds worrying about it because I simply don't care about my ability to pedal a two-wheeled machine. But that quickly triggered thoughts about the fact that my kids were eight and 10 at the time or seven and nine and didn't know how to ride bikes yet. And I started thinking about what a terrible mother I am, that my parent, my children could be this age and still don't know how to ride a bike because I cared deeply about being a good mom. And so if you, if your listeners, like if you really think about like, what was the last thing keeping you up at night, you know, when your wheels are spinning and you can't sleep at two in the morning, it's not like sadness that Ted Lasso isn't going to come back for a fourth season, even if that's your most favorite show ever. It's really the things that you care the most about. So there's going to be fear and anxiety. The stakes are higher when it's something you care about. And that's where these imposter thoughts come up. And that's where the fear. So I think do it scared is a brilliant motto for anybody, because if you care about it, you're going to be scared. And if you wait until you're not scared, you're not going to do it. Yeah, it won't, it won't be that valuable to you anymore. The risk, the incentive isn't there, perhaps. I don't know a lot about ACT therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. And I know that's a central theme in your work. Can you explain that to our listeners? Absolutely. Yes. So ACT is a new word. It's probably been around for, I don't know, maybe 30 years or something at this point. But in the, you know, in the grand scheme of psychology, it's a newer therapy. And it essentially has one goal. And that goal is to build psychological flexibility. And we know in addition to the presence of quality relationships, psychological flexibility is also a very strong predictor of overall um, health and well-being. And what psychological flexibility is, it's our ability to be in the present moment, aware of and open to all of our internal experiences. So thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, urges, and to make choices like conscious, deliberate choices that are based on values. And values are just the me you want to be, you know, what you want to stand for in the world, the life that you want, it's actions, but mostly qualities of actions, like how you show up to the world. And often we don't do things that are values aligned because we're scared, right? So we're trying to avoid being scared and we hide in the comfort zone or our mind is telling us you're going to be found out or you're not good enough. And we listen, we listen to the thoughts and we want to hide from the discomfort. And so we end up not living a life in line with values. And so ACT is all about building that psychological flexibility. So we're living values congruent lives and changing our relationship to those internal experiences. So they're not in charge. They're not holding us back. I mean, it's almost that whole idea of being vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's very easy to stay in your comfort zone, but when you put yourself out there, you'll, you'll live a better life. Like you said, you'll, you'll go after the things you want and be bold. And that's, that's kind of where we all want to be. A hundred percent. And I, I've been living act and psychological flexibility in my own life for over 20 years. And I tell my clients, cause I'm, I'm still, I'm also a therapist 
And I tell them like, listen, the bad news is I've been doing this for over 20 years and I'm more anxious than I've ever been. I have an anxiety clinic. So typically people who come to me are coming for anxiety and they're like, what? Like, why am I seeing you? Like, but the reason I'm more anxious is because I'm so much more bold. I'm so much more willing to do it scared, right? Like to take those risks. And like you had mentioned about me doing a TED talk, that's one of the most scared I've ever been professionally. So of course I have more anxiety, right? Because I'm like doing these things that really matter to me that feel really, really scary. And that's so, so act is, you know, a lot of times when with other therapies, when you're going to therapy, the goal is to reduce feelings, right? Reduce anxiety. And with ACT, like we hope maybe that will be a nice byproduct, but it is absolutely not the goal. And the more you do things that matter, the more scared you might feel. So it could sort of be the opposite. But what you also get is meaning and vitality and fulfillment. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm like literally getting goosebumps (laughs) as I, as I say this, you know, it just, it just makes life more vibrant and more worth living. Do you think it's also just coming to terms with being comfortable with being uncomfortable? You know what I mean? Right? Like, you know, you're going to be anxious. So just accept it and don't run away from it. A hundred percent. And I had a, um, I I was asked to give a talk to some like seniors in high school. It was this this big event, really cool event. And it was about improving mental health and reducing suicide. And they really wanted these kids to walk away with something not tangible, but like applicable, you know, something applied that was going to help their mental health and reduce their suicide risk. And I only had 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, this is a tall order for a therapist who normally sees people every week for four to six months, you know, for an hour. And so I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, if there was one thing that I could teach human beings that I think would dramatically change their life, it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And in acceptance commitment therapy, we call that willingness or acceptance. That's the A in the acceptance and commitment therapy and act. And acceptance doesn't mean, you know, giving up or giving in or resignation or anything like that. It's, it's letting what's already present anyway to just be. And a lot of times that's discomfort and we work so hard to move away from discomfort. And it's like, it's not the pain that's the problem. It's everything we do to avoid it and control it. The resistance, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a Buddhist concept. Pain times resistance equals suffering. Pain is just part of being human, right? We literally come out of the womb screaming. And if we're not, it means something's terribly wrong. And so pain is just part of, you know, it's like the, the, the ticket, the price of admission to being human. And, but the resistance we get to control. And if we turn down the resistance, we turn down the suffering, even though we will still have pain because that is part of being human. So yes, you are 100% on the money. If I could teach everybody one thing, it would be getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And we do that. I do that in many different ways and talks and therapy, and we can even do it right now. So if you just cross your fingers, like fold your hands, sort of like prayer, the way you normally do, and your listeners can do this too, and notice how it feels. And now switch it so you're one finger off. So you're kind of doing it the funny feeling way. And then notice how that feels. And especially notice the urge to put your hands back the quote unquote right way. And can you like breathe and open up and make space for that urge, for that discomfort and just sit with it and let it be there. And, you know, so that's one just like tiny, easy little practice. And of course there are 
thousands, a thousand other ways we can, we can do that. Like I like to eat bean boozled jelly beans with my, Oh, those are the my funny ones that have the, yeah. Like the crazy flavors are like, you might get vomit, you might get raspberry. <laughs> Who knows? Exa- that's exactly right. And we do that as a willingness exercise because that takes some getting comfortable being uncomfortable. If you're going to eat a, you know, vomit flavored jelly bean. Is it also about making new neural pathways, right? Because the ones that you make all the time, you do things the same way, you know, you put your leg in the pants with the right leg, but then you switch. But if you always switch to that new leg, that new hand or whatever it might be, it won't seem so weird after a while. Yep, absolutely. And I I like the idea. There was a a woman who wrote a book. Her name's Maho Molfino. She wrote a book called Break the Good Girl Myth. And I don't actually know if this is hers or she borrowed it from someone else, but she is the person I learned it from where she talks about the comfort zone and the circle. If you picture it like a circle, like the edge of that circle is a dotted line called your vulnerability edge. And the idea is to just push yourself a little bit outside that vulnerability edge, right? Because if you go too far out, you're going to come diving straight back into the middle, right? And never want to leave your your comfort zone again. So just go to that vulnerability edge. And the more you do that, then your comfort zone expands, right? So now the circle's bigger. And if you keep pushing that vulnerability edge, that circle will keep getting bigger. And those neural pathways are are getting rewired as as you're doing that. What used to be uncomfortable becomes more comfortable the more you practice. Yeah, yeah. More tolerable. And then your yeah, your experiences just get better. I like to always ask myself when I'm, you know, facing a choice about doing something that makes me a little uncomfortable, you know, if I was 80 years old, would I look back and regret that I did this thing? And the answer is I was no. I'm always like, I'll be happy I did this, even if it's a bad experience, because I'll have learned something and, you know, try something new and you always think about like, what kind of life do you want to live? And you don't want to live a boring life where you just stay at home every night and watch Netflix. You want to go do stuff and live. And there's a, uh, there's a values exercise in act. And first of all, I love what you just did with the 80 year old. We call that perspective taking. And that's actually a strategy we use in acceptance and commitment therapy. That's like kind of looking at your life at different times. And it's very effective. Sometimes we'll have people imagine They've lived a very long life, but it's their eulogy. And what would you want people to say about the way you lived your life? That's kind of a similar perspective taking exercise. And one of the values exercises I love is a way to get in touch with the type of person you want to be is to think about, now I just said eulogy and now I'm about to talk about an epitaph. I swear not <laughs> all of act is about death, but when you, you know, when you face your mortality, that does teach you something about the way you want to live while you're here. So if you think about an epitaph, which is like what it would say on your gravestone, would you want it to say, here lies Raina. She always played it safe so that she would never fail or be rejected or be humiliated. And she was always comfortable, right? Or would you want it to say, here lies Raina. She took chances and sometimes it was hard and she was terrified, but she was bold and you know something something to that effect that you can sort of say like what is what would i want to be able to say in one kind of pithy line about the way i chose to live my life and that that starts to get you in touch with those those values that's part of psychological flexibility yeah i agree that brings out the courageous side where you're like i need to go do some things i want to i want to try everything yeah well speaking of trying things let's talk about doing a tedx talk what is that like? How do you prepare? I can only imagine it's super nerve wracking, but also really awesome and exhilarating. Yes. So I will say that when I, this was like a professional bucket list, you know, item for me. 
And a, a colleague of mine alerted me to a TED, TEDx event that was happening. And this was during COVID. So it was all virtual. And it was like the due date was like within the next couple of days that you had to submit a video. And so at first I was like, oh, I don't think I can do this, but it's okay. I'll just send the video. There's no way I'm going to get picked. And I had read, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name, but Chris something. He's like the TED guy and he wrote a really good book. We, I can look it up and you can put it in the show notes if your listeners are interested in this. I highly recommend this book. It's like all the tips you need to get a TED Talk accepted basically. And I had read it and I had some, you know, some ideas, but it was pretty clear that most people get rejected the first couple of times they applied. So I thought, well, I'll just get my first rejection over with. So I made this brief video and I sent it in and I immediately got accepted. And then of course the imposter thoughts and the inner critic show up saying, well, they must've just accepted everybody, right? Like she must've been short on submissions and just, I just got lucky. Yeah. And so then I, then I was like, oh shoot, now I have to do a Ted talk. And I was so insecure. I thought, do I have an idea worth sharing? And I almost wasn't going to do it. And I'll, I'll tell you, this is like a really vulnerable thing for me, but I grew up with parents who called me tubby, little tubbet, tubby, tubby, two by four. They were otherwise kind and loving people, but you know, we live in a fat phobic society and they were not very nice when it came to my body. So of course I grew up with a handful of issues around food and body weight and body image and all of these kinds of things, not surprisingly. And during COVID, I gained a lot of weight. And this is when I was doing this TED Talk. And I just, you know, this is, and I know logically, like my body size shouldn't matter, but emotionally, this is such a raw spot for me. And I thought, oh my God, I cannot memorialize myself on video like this. I just can't. I was so self-conscious and insecure and scared. And so I got in touch with my values and one of my most favorite exercises for values, in addition to that epitaph that we talked about, is, um, I, well, I had a client come one day and she had done a whole bunch of great stuff. And I said, how did you do it? What, what motivated you to make all of these you know, commitments over the week? And she said, well, I just thought WWJD. And I start spinning out thinking she's religious. What would Jesus do is what that usually means, right? And that I'm a terrible therapist because how did I know she wasn't religious? And right then she goes, you know what would Jill do? And I burst out laughing. And, and she said, I just sort of carried you around on my shoulder thinking if when I had a choice to make, what would Jill want me to do? And I loved this so much. And so now I use this with my clients and they get to pick whoever their J is. It can be someone you know, it can be a celebrity who you feel like you know, it can be a fictional character even. And so for me, my J is Oprah because Oprah has gotten through, you know, abuse, sexism, poverty, body shaming, all of it. And it's never stopped her. And she's always been her authentic self. And she uses her power for good, at least to the extent I think I know Oprah. We're not pals. I, I mean, I wish we were. <laughs> Same. So when I had this, right, she's amazing. So when I had this TED Talk opportunity and I was terrified, I thought, well, what would Oprah do? And immediately I was like, well, <laughs> she'd give the talk. We've all seen Oprah's body change dramatically over the years, right out in the public stage. And she would do the talk. And then I thought, if Oprah knew I was feeling this way, what would she say to me? You know, WWOD and WWOS. And I thought she would say, Jill, you are so much. Oh, I'm getting choked up. You are so much more than your body. 
And if you have a message to share, that is your professional mission to go share these psychological flexibility skills with as many people as you can, people who can't afford therapy, et cetera. And that was it, decision made. Now, my fear did not reduce one single iota. (laughs) And it's the most scared I've probably ever been. And I will be honest, when I watch that video, it is very hard for me to watch. My inner critic gets very, very loud about the way I look. But you know what? I wore a bright red blouse and leopard print shoes because I wasn't going to hide behind my insecurity right? And the inner critic is loud about the content and and everything, right? That's what inner critics do because they're there to try to protect you from failure and humiliation and rejection. But I am so glad I did it. So glad and really freaking proud of myself. I love that whole, um, yeah, WWJD, like you said, put your important person in there and um, talk to yourself kindly. You know, there's that other phrase people use where it's like, how would you talk to your sister about this or your daughter? If we talked to our friends the way we talk to ourselves, we would have zero friends. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, we would. I know. Remember that. It's like, hey, why are you treating yourself better? That's not okay. I also want to hear about your podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. So tell us about that. What is it about? When does it come out? Ugh. I, podcasting is one of my most favorite things to do. Like, isn't this just so fun to like nerd out with smart people yes. about topics that interest you? <laughs> it's totally. Like the greatest just, thing ever. Keep learning. I love it. So we, there are um, three of us co-hosts, soon to be four, and we interview experts in psychology about science-backed ideas from psychology. And it, the topics run the gamut. I mean, there's parenting, there's when to quit, there, I mean, I just like everything under the sun. We had Angela Duckworth who wrote the book Grit. We, you know, we've just had a lot of really cool people. And so we each take turns. It's a different host each week. So it's a weekly podcast, but like I only do one interview a month. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to divide up the work, actually. I like that. Yes, because podcasting is a ton of work and this definitely makes it much, much more manageable. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's so fun. It's my favorite. And you can see that my co-host and I joke that if you look over the past, I think the podcast's been around about seven years, you can see where we are in our lives because like early topics were about parenting really young kids. Now it's about parenting teens. I just did an episode on menopause because I turned 50 this year. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to go after what you're interested in though, right? And usually your audience follows along with yep. that. Yeah. 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 Now you also have a, a newsletter that comes out. Um, let's talk to my listeners about that, how they can get in touch and what do they find on that newsletter? I do. So that's on my website, which is just jillstoddard.com. And I think you can subscribe on like every page. And I only send it once a month and it's brief and it's tips typically based on act or psychological flexibility about anxiety, stress, imposter syndrome, decision-making, um, you know, just little like m- mental health kinds of of tips to, to help people thrive, science-backed ideas from psychology to help people thrive. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your tips. And especially, you know, like we all have anxiety. It's going to be there. Just get comfortable with it. <laughs> Those are great things to remember. As always, if you like what you're hearing on You Betcha She Did, don't forget to share the show with a friend, a neighbor, a cousin. Someone probably wants this information and you know who they are. So don't, don't gatehold it. Spread it out. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. 
and take care of yourself. Until next time. Attention, you betcha sheeted listeners. If you're like me, you love listening to podcasts, and perhaps you have even thought of starting your own podcast. If that is the case, I would love for you to download my free top 10 podcasting equipment essentials. Here you will find my recommendations for 10 pieces of podcasting equipment that will help you get a podcast up and running smoothly without breaking the bank. That's right. Podcasting does not have to be a super expensive endeavor. It's actually quite affordable and is a great way to elevate your voice, grow your brand, and get your name out there, especially as an expert. Check the show notes for your free podcast top 10 essential equipment guide. You can also go to podcaststartupguide.com. 